We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. This is uh, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. This is the second letter he wrote to them. I assume that when you get a second letter, it's... I don't know if it's... Right, I don't know if it's like a bill collector, but maybe there were more things he couldn't write about in the first one. He's like, part two. This is God's word. It says this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And if he died for all, all those who... Uh, all those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for who, uh, excuse me, for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, and through whom Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to the measure or to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made us to be sin, for he made him to be sin, who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. I think there are three big lies that we in our society have been told. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, and if you have never read any of his books, go get one. It'll change your mind. It'll change your whole life. It's amazing. This guy was awesome. Anyways, he has this thought. He says this, that there are three big lies that we believe about our identity. I am what I do, I am what I have, and I am what other people say or think about me. Those are the three big lies. Lie number one, I am what I do. We often identify ourselves, especially at parties or at places we've never been before and we have to meet strangers, and the first thing we ask somebody is, what do you do? We use our jobs or our occupations or our, um, uh, uh, or our recreation or our preoccupations to identify ourselves. I am a systems administrator. I am a pastor. I am a teacher. I'm a cop. I'm a homemaker. Sometimes we like to use uh, uh, what we do as our prime identification. I am a hiker. I am a runner. I am a couch potato. I am a hermit. You know, sometimes... We identify ourselves by uh, what we do that's not so good. I'm a drunk. I'm a broken person. It's a lie. The second lie is that I am what I have. I make my prime identity based upon the things that I own or that I possess. It's this false security. Possession, oftentimes we think of as what's in our garage or what's in our homes, or, or what great things that we have uh, that we sort of own, a house, a car, whatever. But possessions are not just stuff that we've purchased or own or whatever, not like these sleeping bags I told you guys about. You know, it, I, I, those are often what we believe identify ourselves. Oh, that's Jake, and he has this. Funny story, I remember when I was a kid, um, uh, my friend Brian was the first kid on our block to get the Nintendo Entertainment System, the original Nintendo Entertainment System. 
the one with the square cartridges and everything, and then when they got bad, you had to pull them out, blow in them, and put them back in, and then they would work. Um, his identity to me was the place I could go to play video games for free. That was that guy. So I identified him based on what he had. But often, like I said, possessions are not just the things that we own. Um, if I'm rich, sure, I have lots of stuff, but I, if I'm in the middle of it, I wish I had more stuff. But also, uh, these are identifiers or characteristics that we own or that we have about us. I am bald, therefore I am a bald person. We identify ourselves in that way. Sometimes we use our, our gender, our, our sexuality, our, our, um, uh, you know, our physical characteristics that we have as our identifiers. And that is also a lie. Those are not true identities. Lie three is that I am what other people say or think that I am about me. Often we join ourselves to others based upon their assessment of you. And then we assume that identity. Oh, you're a singer. Why don't you come join our choir? And now you are part of the choir. You are a choir member. This is your identity. Uh, granted, that's sort of a surfacey level thing, but sometimes it's, it's deeper than that. Sometimes you have a certain uh, characteristic about you that sets you apart from other people, and you basically, uh, this other community says, well, we see that you have this characteristic, and therefore you are a part of us. And you assume that identity that they have for you. But on the opposite side, we often adopt an identity based upon negative things that other people of other groups have said about us. You have chronic halitosis, therefore we don't want you around. You know, or uh, you, you certainly run in circles we don't like, and therefore you are a terrible person, and therefore we take on that identity. We take on that negativity. In either case, those things, either positive or negative, are false markers of our identity. If you remember the movie Breakfast Club, which is, you gotta see it if you haven't seen it. I'm sure most of us in this room have seen it, and maybe a few people who have not, but I, it is a fantastic film. And in that movie, there's a character played by Ali Sheedy, and you never know her name, ever. And she, uh, in the midst of everybody else explaining who they are, what they do, the jock, the, pre, the, jock, the nerd, the popular girl, she takes her entire bag that she's been wearing around her shoulders and dumps it out onto the table and says, this is me in a sense. And it is a hodgepodge collection of all manner of, of odds and ends. This is her. She's dumping it out. What she has, what she does, what other people say about her, in a sense, wrapped up into this bag dumped out on the world uh, uh, on the stage for everybody to see she's disclosing her identities but in a sense she's disclosing the falsehood the falsehoods the lies we are not what we do as our prime identity we are not what we have as our primary identity we are not what other people say about us or think about us that is not our primary identity and the reason I mention this this morning is that there is a big truth. And I think that Paul writes to the Corinthian church because he wants them to know that all of the things that they have been struggling through, their identity and who they are as a people, has been basically, they've been regarding themselves based upon these external characteristics, their nationality, their, their, their um, um, you know, uh, political sort of uh, thinkings they've been using all of these false identities to 
identify themselves. And what Paul is doing here is he's telling them death is not the right way to do things. The big truth here, if we have these three big lies, there's a big truth. Jesus, by his self-sacrificing death for sin and resurrection to kickstart new creation, has provided humanity with the proper way to identify ourselves. Jesus has actually given us the real identity. We're like a lotto ticket that it says, if you look on the lottery ticket, it shows you all these little fun things. Sometimes lotto tickets have all these different drawings and sparkly things, but that's not the lotto ticket. The real value in the lotto ticket is what's underneath that thing you scratch off. And in the same way, humanity is what God has valued that humanity to be underneath it all. And he identifies us as beloved of God, indwelled by the Spirit, and participants in the service of reconciliation. Our true, true, true identity is beloved of God. We are his beloved. You are his beloved. That is how God sees you. I want to strike down any notion in this world that God is looking at us with anger. That God is looking down on us and saying, oh, you filthy sinners. We are not sinners in the hands of an angry God. We are sinners in the hands of a loving God. We are sinners in the hands of a God who looks on us and says, I love you. You are my beloved. One of the prayers we pray, I can't remember it too well in Hebrew anymore because, well, if you know me in my Hebrew class, it goes in one ear for the week and then out that, and then I panic around you know, midterm time. But one of the prayers is from the Song of Solomon, and it says, my, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. And in reality, that is how God sees us. I mean, look at Jesus' words. For God so loved the world. And in 1 John 4.10, it says, This is love, that God sent His one and only Son to become uh, to die for us. It's not that we loved Him, but that He loved us first. We are God's beloved. You are God's beloved. When we read Paul's words this morning uh, to the church at Corinth, you might see the work of God for humanity to bring it in right relationship with God. This is God's doing. God loves us so much that he comes into our broken world and saves us by his own power. It's what he has done for us because he loves us. God's not trying to save face. God's not trying to, you know, say, oh, I'm so sorry, humanity. You kind of went wayward sunish on me, so I'm going to bring you in and ground you for, the, for all eternity. No, he's basically coming into the world and saying, let me be with you, and I love you. You are beloved. Jesus tells us that we are reconciled through what Christ did for us in his death and his resurrection because he loves us, the church, and all of humanity. We are his beloved. You are his beloved. I want you to say it with me. I am God's beloved. Say it again. I am God's beloved. Now, for some of us, it may be awkward to say. I get it. And it's a hard truth to, to get because the lies that we've believed about who we are are so deeply ingrained in our humanity that it's going to take time. It will take time for you to get to the place where you truly, truly believe that you are God's beloved. And because we are God's beloved, God was not content just to leave us there. He didn't come down from heaven uh, into this world and say, you good? I'm out. He's not a watchmaker 
who just says, well, you're my favorite watch of all time and I'll put you together and I'm just going to leave you over in the corner. God doesn't just love us and leave us, but he transforms us from death to life. I love what it says here. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And I thought about that. What does that look like? How am I new? I mean, clearly I'm getting older. I'm not getting much younger on the outside. If you read back a little bit into the passage, she talks about that. She says, my outer self, my physicality is wasting away. She says, but my inner self is being renewed day by day by day. Paul's saying that this new creation thing is just something, is a state of reality that is now. And while everything on the outside of me seems to be getting a little bit worse every day, a little more creaky, a little less, uh, you know, up top, um, you know, he's saying that the inner part of me, though, the inner person is being renewed daily and it is becoming more. In a sense, what is in here will one day push itself out of this uh, and, and one day will be uh, the, the, the physical will match what's going on on the inside. And it is a now thing. When we are new creations, we are not waiting for some existential existence out there. Jesus says that we are now being transformed. We are now the new creation. So those of us that have placed their faith in Jesus are new people today, indwelled by the Spirit of God and His presence. Paul talks, like I said, we're getting older, but our inner is getting younger. I love this thinking about this whole idea of creation. In Genesis 1, let there be light, and there was light, and let there be grass, and there was, and trees, and cool that, and birds, and, and, and platypuses, and giraffes, and weird things. And in a sense, God is continually waking up uh, waking us up each day going, something new is now birthed in you, something new. And we're constantly being recreated. Who I was is not who I am becoming. Say this with me. Who I was is not who I'm becoming. Who I was is not who I'm becoming. And that's because God loves you. I am God's beloved and who I was is not who I am becoming. Let that sink in. God loves you and his love is everlasting and it is a now thing and it is making you new and new and new and new and your past is being whittled away to one day that you won't even remember it. I remember C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce mentioned this whole idea is that once we make it, once we get to the end of the road and then we find that once we're in heaven, all of the things that were hell were actually little pieces of heaven that made its way and God will redeem all of those things. And in a sense, as we are becoming new every day, God himself is making all of our hells into little bits of heaven. I am not who I was but I am what God is making me because I am his beloved. Third, because we are God's beloved and because he, we are new creations, then he's doing something new in us and then he's remaking us into the image of his son. He doesn't just say you're good and leave us alone. He says, why don't you come do what I do? It says here in the scriptures that we have been made ministers or ambassadors or servants of reconciliation. Now, reconciliation, depending upon where you, uh, what your mind is like, sometimes that's a legal term. Sometimes it's two warring parties, a husband and wife who've divorced and they reconcile and they come back together or they split amicably or whatever that looks like. Maybe that's 
reconciliation. But I think what Paul's talking about here is that it can be described as the action of reestablishing a friendship between two people who are on bad terms and replacing the hostility with peaceful relations. This is what God did for us in Christ. And that this is what we are invited to be a part of in the world we occupy, to be servants of reconciliation. On one hand, we need to reconcile in the church. Truth be told, I think that the, the church in Corinth was probably riddled with uh, strife between people. And usually that's how it is. Most people in the church aren't too cheesed off at God about too many things. But we are sure cheesed off at each other for things that we've done. I mean, I've experienced it. Oh, you didn't sing the right song. Oh, you were this way or that way. Or you didn't do this or this. And it causes this relational rift. And what Paul is doing here, he's saying, because God has come into your life, and because you are all the beloved, and that you are all new creations, we need to treat each other in a different way than you've done before. You need to reconcile. You need to take this wall of hostility, get rid of it, suck it up, be nice to one another, reconcile. If God is no longer angry at me, why are you angry with each other, in a sense? This is what God did for us, and so this is how we ought to be in the church. And what he says here, he says, no longer regard others according to the flesh. Now, what, it, what he means by that are those external and internal characteristics about us, our past, the things we've done, the things, the crowds we used to run with, our former lives. He says, don't bring that into the conversation anymore. You're brand new. Every day you get up, you're brand new. The past is gone. Let it stay the past. Jesus once said to a guy who said, let me follow you. Jesus says, come on with me. And he says, let me go bury my father. He says, well, I'm sorry. Why don't you let the dead bury the dead? In the sense, in the same way within the church, within our relationships, we need to let the past be the past and not drag it into the conversation any longer. We should not identify each other based upon what we have done or what we had or what others used to think about us or the people we used to run with. What he is saying here is that we need to wholesale flush garbage disposal of this past thing and embrace our God-provided identities, beloved of God. Well, it's not a dismissal of the past, but it makes peace with it because God already did. And it clears the barriers to relationships. So within the church, we must be agents and servants and ministers of reconciliation amongst each other. Secondly, though, I think this is wider interpretation or wider uh, implications. We need to be reconcilers in the world as well. Listen, if the church gets it right, if what we do here uh, works and we are reconcilers with one another, that spills out there. And they go, listen, if this disparate group of people who comes from all walks of life are able to co-mingle with each other and become a body of believers, not based upon their similarities, but based on their differences, then why can't it work out there as well? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We need to be peacemakers. If we are the beloved of God because of his work in us, we need to mimic our Father by being peacemakers and reconcilers to the best of our abilities in our places that we, not in here. So when you go to work and you deal with that one guy who just makes your skin crawl, and he just bothers you to no end. You know what? Reconcile. Okay, 
Some of you are cringing right now because you know what that's like. I do too. There's a, in my mind when I'm saying that, I know of the person I'm thinking of and he probably doesn't like me very much either. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, be reconciled. Look on that person as the beloved of God. Whoa, that, okay, right there, I hate that. I don't, I'm, I'm angry about that because there are certain people I would just rather not care for. But Jesus is saying here, it says, if God so loved the world that he came for, to die and be raised for that person, and he considers that person the beloved of God, so should I. And it's hard work, but it's what he wants us to do. And if we get it right, we can actually take this gospel message and we can actually, it, it actually has weight. Because when people think of the gospel out in the world, they think of these weird religious nuts who are walking around with their Bibles smashing people. And what we really need to be doing is not closed fists, but open hands. That's the message here. And people will take us seriously. If we get this right within our group, people will take us seriously when we go to work on Monday. If we started viewing people as the beloved of God rather than their false identities that we have branded them with, we might actually do some reconciling work in this world and bring a bunch of heaven to earth. So how do we respond to this? Well, Paul says it right here. For the love of Christ controls us. And the word control here is really like the rudder of a ship. It directs us, motivates us, puts us in the right direction. It is the sail that captures the wind when the love of God controls us, we reconcile. See, God no longer regards or knows you by what you used to do or, or who you even were 10 seconds ago. So my encouragement to you to respond is to receive God's reconciliation. We are viewed by God as his righteousness. Otherwise, in other words, like he sees Jesus. The father has Jesus shaped glasses on and all he sees when he looks at humanity is his son. He doesn't look on you as a person who blew it yesterday when you did that one thing that you weren't supposed to do. He looks on you as he looks on his son. So your response first and foremost is to receive that you are his beloved and nothing will or can separate you from his love and his grace given identity in Jesus receive God's reconciliation. Secondly, let's be truthful. Receiving God's love is far easier in our minds than what I'm about to tell you to do. Give God's reconciliation. Oh, Jake, you're killing me. Yeah, I'm killing me too. We need to give reconciliation also to the best of our ability. No, I get it. Let me just, let me caveat this, okay? I understand that there are some relationships in this world that will never be healed. It's just, it's, it's darn near impossible. Either because the hurt is so bad that it is just out of your capability of, of forgiving and healing and letting it go and bringing it into a friendship again. I get it. That happens. Sometimes that's just the way it is. But in general, most of our relationships in this world are not at that level. So let me speak to that. We ought to see the other people as the reconciled of God. 
We ought to see other people as the beloved of God. Yes, even those people who go, uh, who are morally corrupt, politicians, <laughs> sorry, I had to say it. Um, uh, we need to see them as the beloved of God. God died for those who are seemingly outside of the church, but his grace and forgiveness extends past these four walls into the entire universe. We ought to no longer regard other people according to the flesh or the characteristics that they have adopted for themselves, but rather treat them as beloved. They are the beloved of God also. And our, our attitude and our, our, our posture towards other people need to see them as we would see each other in this church, as beloved. This is what it means to be part of the ministry of reconciliation. So your job, should you choose to accept it, because I'm very confident that all of you here are on a day-by-day basis receiving the, the love of God and that you are reconciled to him already and that it is a good thing and you know that you are the beloved of God. And that is awesome. Your job this week is, and I, this is my job too, is that when you run into that person from which you have conflict with at your job, your neighbor, Maybe even the person you live with in the house, you know, whatever it is. Reconcile. See them as you would see and greet them as you would greet Jesus himself. No, it's going to be hard because I definitely don't see Jesus in some people. (laughs) But God is asking me to do just that very thing. Be reconciled. Let's take a moment of quiet and just consider what God may have been saying to you in this particular time. And yeah, as we do that, we'll prepare our hearts to receive communion as well. As we prepare our hearts this morning to uh, receive the, the bread and the cup, let us remind ourselves of just what it looks like for God to reconcile the world to himself. Let us pray together the Apostles' Creed that is uh, on your cards in front of you if you want to read it with me.